0: edition of Monocle on Sunday was first broadcast on the 25th of September 2022 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle on Sunday, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. Coming up on today's programme, we hear from our editorial director, Tyler Brulé. Also, my panellists, Charles Hecker and Simon Brook, will be in our London studio to round up today's main stories. We'll talk to Monocle's Europe editor-at-large in Milan to find out the latest on the elections.
1: It's a huge day here in Italy in which the political needle could move sharply to the right. It is, of course, election day and over 50 million Italians are able to express their vote. The polls have been open since 7am this morning and they'll be open right through until 11pm this evening. I'm Ed Stocker in Milan and I'll be bringing you the latest
0: Thank you very much to Ed. We look forward to that. And more ahead here on Monocle on Sunday, coming to you live from London. Well, let's start in Stockholm, where our editorial director, Tyler Brulé, finds himself this morning. Good morning to you, Tyler.
2: Good morning, Georgina. Uh,
0: why are you in Stockholm, firstly?
2: <laughs> why, why am I? Personal reasons, Georgina. We can't disclose everything <laughs> on radio. Uh, no, here for uh, here for a couple of uh, of meetings uh, and also a bit of a, of a, a family moment as well. We'll uh, we'll leave it at that.
0: Uh, now you've had a really busy week though, and you have been travelling all over the place. You were in London last weekend.
2: I was in London last weekend, uh, indeed, uh, which was really uh, one of those weekends. Aside, of course, from uh, everything that was happening uh, in the run up to uh, the funeral for the Queen. Um, at the same time, just one of those uh, amazing weekends when London was just in perfect form, big skies uh, and just one of those perfect autumn days, uh, certainly that we had uh, across uh, across last Saturday uh, as well.
0: Mm-hmm. And you were doing some book shopping. In fact, you went to, I think, one of our shared mutual f- uh, favourite shops. That's Daunts in Maliburn.
2: Indeed, well, I was around the corner, and as you you probably noticed, every time—well, uh, maybe you don't notice because there's always. Also, I was going to say there's there's many you know, daunt bags that, of course, always come back into the office, uh, and there's often a box that has to get uh, shipped back to Zurich uh, as as well. But I was um, I was just sort of commenting and watching sort of the rebound, the revival of London. Uh, it, you know, of course, you. I, I sort of feel like you've got a lot of Americans who were still sort of extending Labor Day weekend, who haven't uh, quite returned to the United States yet. Of course, lots of visitors from the Gulf uh, keeping London department stores very busy. But what was the amazing thing about, uh, of course, you know, the world of books. And of course, this is your patch, Georgina. It was remarkable to see how many people were in Daunt. And I was just, I was commenting in today's column that it almost could be a, a situation where the bookshop, certainly a bookshop like Daunt, which is you know, it's premium, it's well positioned, could almost start behaving like the luxury goods stores when you see queues out in front of Bottega Veneta, Louis Vuitton, Hermes, etc., where they're regulating people coming in, because it was absolutely jammed inside. And I thought, well, maybe if, if people actually saw queues out in front of bookstores, of course, queues generate more queues, uh, and it would just be sort of you know, a great vote for the for the book industry.
0: Absolutely, and, and make books sexier, as if they needed it.
2: <laughs> as if they needed it, e- exactly. But I think when there's, you know, there's so much sort of down uh, news and when people sort of look at a variety of sectors uh, and, and and many, of course, being walloped. It's just it's just great to see that uh, an independent player like Don, of course, it's, it, it has some scale. It's not just a one-door operation. But nevertheless, uh, that people are just, you know, you know amongst the stacks uh, and, of course, you know, buying in volume.
0: Absolutely. Uh, then you went off to Portugal.
2: I was. And this is actually interesting. There is a, a major... Uh, global conference which happens every year. Also, I didn't disclose this on the call. and I also happen to be the president, so I have a small vested interest in this. But the group (laughs) is called Press. and DistroPress is the global organization. If you're sitting and listening to this, uh, you know, this morning maybe in in London, and you want to get your copy of Le Monde, uh, or if you're sitting, uh, you know, maybe in Spain, and you want to get your copy of the Sunday Times, Press is that global organization of Retailers and publishers and distributors and freight forwarders, who are responsible for getting the international press around the world. Uh, so it is—it's you know, incredibly important. Uh, you know, obviously there's the, has the headwinds of digitization uh, that it has to deal with as well. But it's it's essential for people who want a bit of paper and ink between their fingers. It's a long-standing organization. So this is the big jamboree. And just going back to the point of digitization and books, one of the interesting things, Georgina, was we've really seen a flattening out of of e-readers. One of the interesting pieces of data that we had, um, which was brought up by Jim Bilton, who normally does a big sort of forecast of of the industry and an overview of the industry, so that, you know, now we've had a series of years where people have decided, and I'm not sure what your view is on this, given, uh, of course, your relationship with the book market, but it's pretty much, you know, 27%, 28% are e-reader-based. And then, of course, we've seen a bounce back as well with just print sales because many people, of course, you know, flirted with the idea of having a Kindle but have decided it's not for them um, and they prefer to have a good old hardback.
0: Absolutely. Um, now, I honestly don't know how you do it but but uh, kind of head-turning uh, <laughs> uh, travels for you. Uh, so from that and really quite a big role in in, in that, as you say, uh, where did you find yourself next?
2: So then it was off to, it was off to Madrid uh, and and Madrid was yeah, a little bit of a yeah a meeting with uh, with one of uh, Europe's biggest uh, and certainly Latin America's uh, bigger uh, newspaper and media groups. Just catching up with them, uh, getting a read on the state of the industry. And uh, you know, as as you've noticed, there has been uh, quite quite a bit of stain in terms of uh, what we're doing uh, and and where we're looking at the moment. So it was was there also that involved a little bit of a of a touchdown at a favorite men's store. And also, just have one—you know one of those moments when you go into a, a, a retailer, Georgina, and everything just goes. You just hit it at the right moment. They have your size. There's someone fantastic there to serve you, uh, and and of course, uh, you leave with your your credit card, uh, perhaps creeping up towards its limit.
0: Tyler, you uh, went through Helsinki Airport, and you had a really wonderful experience there, which is odd, generally for airports.
2: Well, it is, and it's uh, it, it's. it's Helsinki Airport has just uh, completed, or at least phase. I don't know what phase they're in. Whether it's phase two, phase three of of a major overhaul. So they've created a beautiful new timber structure, uh, which both welcomes uh, guests when when they are checking in, uh, but also it is the point of arrivals when you when you of course uh, touch down in the Finnish capital. But there's there's not just been an investment in architecture. It was great to see that this was a moment that. The just didn't commission a great building, but they said, yes, we're also going to properly invest in, in X-ray technology as well. So they're not low. of course, many airports uh, around the world have invested in those new machines, which uh, it don't demand uh, that you take out your toiletry kit and your laptop and any other electronic device. You can just whack it through the system um, and off you go. And it is incredible because on one side, we all remember the days you didn't have to do any of that. And actually going through... X-ray, it was not such a big production, uh, but obviously off the back of September 11th, it became uh, considerably more complex. And we've been living with that now for over, over two decades. Uh, so it's amazing to see that it's taken technology this long to catch up, but, and at the same time as well, you know, these things also involve human capital. I mean, you need people who also are there to manage and, and of course look after the process. And it was all, it was just, it was made that much better because here you had uh, the sunniest, Security woman I've dealt with um, in, in a very long time. And it's, it's amazing what that does for a national brand part of the travel experience. You suddenly actually, okay the Finns are committed to this and this is an airport that, you know, I don't mind flying through and maybe I wouldn't mind connecting through more often.
0: Uh, absolutely. Uh, and of course, the, the, the autumn has finally arrived. I mean, officially, it's the end of summer uh, and uh, things are looking a little bit bleak, not just <laughs> weather-wise, <laughs> but sadly, economically, politically and all the rest of it. But we are, can take steps to uh, cheer ourselves up and it's all to do with the lighting.
2: Well, uh, of course, as we know, there's stories, swirling around and and various measures uh, that are being proposed by, of course, local governments, governments at at a more national or federal level, and and certainly from a European context, uh, you know, more than anywhere else in the world, what are we going to do with this looming uh, energy crisis? And particularly, what are we going to do if it is a rather frigid European winter and uh, we have to potentially crank up the heat, et cetera? And I was walking around Stockholm and, you know, there have been many occasions where we've always commented on the fact that... The nordic world maybe the swedes do it best they they turn the lights down that in fact you know as as the days grow shorter and night sets in much earlier it's it's not a case and, and you'll know this very well georgina when, when you walk around these streets it's not like they kind of go and like brighten everything up and it's not that the swedes sort of you know crank up the lights it will blast In fact everything is it's lower watt light bulbs it is that idea of creating a sense of warmth and coziness and, and made me think actually, well, you're you're, losing, you're using lower watt light bulbs, uh, of course, people are probably also using much more energy efficient light bulbs as well, but everything is just dimmed down. So if, what if we all dim down, uh, of course, over the months to come, which doesn't mean sort of a total lights off moment, maybe this could be a good thing. My other solution was, though, no one talks about, and this goes back to the world of, of Kindles and tablets and, and devices, etc. We're making all of these proposals about, of course, you know, um, obviously fixing your the settings on your refrigerator, whatever it you know may be. You don't use the the you know don't use the tumble dryer, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I was also thinking we don't talk about the power uh, of of the digital world and how much you know, how much energy servers, uh, of course, uh, are are sucking uh, from the grid, and then we think about having Wi-Fi, and then not to mention, of course, the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of devices which then have to get plugged in every hour of the Mm. day to get recharged overnight, et cetera. So I'm wondering where that is in all of this narrative. It, It can't just be a situation uh, that it's it's only the microwave that's the the great offender.
0: Yeah, get off your phone and the internet for a bit. Put on those cozy lights and just snuggle down for autumn. And of course,
2: and with we, a good book, with a good book,
0: exactly. And and what's George, some, what's,
2: I was going to ask, what is Georgina's recommendation right now? Georgina, if you can think if people can buy I, one book that they have to have this autumn, what, what do you think? I
0: absolutely can tell you that because right now I'm judging the Bailey Gifford Prize for nonfiction, and we've just uh, put out our short shortlist, uh, uh, our long list. Rather and there's there's 12 wonderful books on there. I just want to pick out one because you were talking about uh, Daunt earlier. Uh, and Daunt, uh, as you know, I'm sure, uh, has uh, uh, its own publishing imprint called uh, yeah. Daunt, Daunt Originals. Uh, and there's the most wonderful book, which has made it to our to our long list. It's called The Barefoot Woman, and it's by Scholastique Mukasunga. Uh, it was originally written in French, and it's... Um, about the Rwandan genocide, except it's not. She doesn't. She, she references it, but but it's about growing up from the inside, the, the kind of genocide from the inside. But you never really hear about the killing. It's it's about her mother, and it's an extraordinary journey. And then the other the other book, also from Daunt, not in this case to do with the prize because this is fiction. Uh, but it's a book called uh, The Pachinko Parlor, a uh, wonderful wonderful book. Again, written in French uh, originally. Uh, and by Elisa Shua du um, And I interviewed her yesterday. That's going to come out in a couple of weeks' time. And she's talking about being a, a Korean uh, who's been living in Japan, who's been living uh, all over the place and, and how she was kind of ashamed of her, her upbringing and ashamed of the fact that she was in pachinko parlours and uh, just how that's influenced her life. Again, very beautifully written. I was very, very impressed by that. Of course, you must have been into a pachinko parlour.
2: I've been to Pajinko Parlor or two, and I was going to say this is just uh, on the topic of of great authors. You'll recall, uh, of course, that our listeners will recall you, you and I were in uh, Innsbrad uh, at the beginning of summer uh, for the World of Words uh, Literary Festival. We were on stage with uh, with Elliot Ackerman, the author of Twenty Thirty Four, a book which we've loved, and just every moment that goes by geopolitically, it just seems like this is a gentleman who really has had a crystal ball. Um, and very much a front seat in terms of what is happening uh, across borders uh, and within war rooms around the world. So I'm thrilled to say that we're having our uh, another uh, summit, and this is going to be our chief's conference uh, in uh, November, November 8th and 9th in Dallas, and uh, Elliot Ackerman is going to be uh, joining us uh, in Dallas to, of course, talk about his book and and certainly uh, be waxing a little bit uh, on on the state of uh, where the world is.
0: Mm, I think that's wonderful. And these Chiefs conferences are always really stunning events. I know you've got a stellar lineup for November.
2: Yeah, it's great. I mean, aside from Ackerman, we have Switzerland's ambassador to the US is going to be uh, joining us in Dallas as well, uh, very much talking and and I would say sort of you know, using Swiss soft power to talk about the importance of apprenticeships uh, and, and why we, we don't all need to necessarily go to university, why it's you know, very important to learn skills, what this, of course, means not just for the education system, what it means for a modern workforce uh, as well. Big discussions, uh, of course, around the future of the office uh, and, and what needs to happen there. So, again, the Chiefs Conference very much focused on, on leadership uh, and you know, it welcomes chiefs of, of all kinds, uh, whether they're chiefs of staff, Uh, Chief Executive Officers, Chief Sustainability Officers, uh, and that's going to be, uh, yeah, a gathering of about some 200 people in, in Dallas.
0: And just before you go, Tyler, of course, there's something coming up more immediately. That is our autumn market in Zurich
2: it is absolutely i don't think you're going to be there unless you have other cause georgina but uh the the autumn market uh, really kicks off of course the, the start of what will be a series of events and and markets that we'll be doing of course christmas market really not that far away it was a bit of a, a shocking reminder uh that we're only three months from christmas uh but we'll be announcing the dates uh for our christmas markets. but before that as you said London uh, sorry uh, Zurich uh, October 1st that's next Saturday and again a, just a great collection of of interesting brands uh, a preview of all of the things we're up to this autumn good DJ uh, lots of beer and it's got a light it's got a light light flavor of a bit of a of an Oktoberfest moment as
0: well yeah Tyler thank you very much indeed Thanks, Regina. That was Tyler Brulé, our editorial director, talking to us today from Stockholm, but doubtless he'll be on the move again very shortly and certainly in Zurich next weekend where you can join us for the uh, autumn market at Duferstrasse 90. Now, let's take a look at what else we're keeping an eye on today. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov addressed the UN General Assembly and the world's media on Saturday, casting opposition to Russia's assault on Ukraine as limited to the United States and countries under its sway. Lavrov said regions of Ukraine where widely derided referendums are being held would be under Russia's full protection if they are annexed by Moscow, amid fears Russia could further escalate the conflict and even use nuclear weapons. North Korea fired a ballistic missile towards the sea off its east coast today, ahead of planned military drills by South Korean and U.S. forces involving an aircraft carrier and a visit to the region by U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris. And after powerful storm Fiona left a trail of destruction in Canada's east coast yesterday, the focus shifted to massive clean-up efforts, damage assessment and restoration of power and telecom services, as officials warned of a long road to recovery. The Canadian Hurricane Centre estimated that Fiona was the lowest-pressured land storm on record in Canada. And that's your Monocle 24 News. <laughs> You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Georgina Godwin, and I'm going to bring in our panellists now. I'm joined in the studio by Charles Hecker, senior partner at Control Risk, and Simon Brook, journalist and communications consultant. Now, these are two gentlemen that I speak to often and enjoy speaking to them both so much, but it's the first time you've worked together, I think.
3: That's correct, yeah, absolutely. Face-to-face, yes, indeed. Finally putting a face to a name. Uh, yeah, and well, an email address, yeah.
0: <laughs> but, it's, but it's lovely to have you both in the studio and to get your, your takes on, on, on the same stories. Um, we've been reporting in our headlines, of course, about Lavrov at the United Nations, uh, and there this has sparked many, many column inches. Simon, let's uh, let's have a look at, at what people are saying about this speech where he basically said that, you know, it's all the US's fault and actually we are going to annex it and then Russia will take care of those those areas and uh, it gives them, of course, the platform they need to invade.
3: Yeah, absolutely, very much what they're looking for. And I think uh, Lavrov's sort of bluster at the UN and is what might be described as slightly petulant behaviour is very much echoing the tone of his boss, isn't it, Vladimir Putin, who made that quite extraordinary uh, broadcast um, earlier in the week, which many people have pointed out is less about coming from a position of strength, actually, but really the fact that he's so pushed into a corner um, and there's an interesting piece in the New York Times today uh, by David Brooks, one of their columnists, uh, entitled How Do You Handle a Wounded Putin? And um, he, he has had a briefing from American... This is that uh, David Brooks has had a, a briefing from American officials who are thinking about how they're going to deal, and deal with uh, uh, Putin in this situation, um, looking at how he might escalate the war. Um, if he continues this, or develops a pretense, perhaps, that Russia itself is being invaded, and then obviously that gives him more leeway to to, to take sort of really aggressive action. And what's interesting, I think, is that overall, according to David Brooks, the American strategy is to help the Ukrainians defeat the Russian invasion but slowly. And so he says the idea is to go, to hit a a series of singles, not go for one crushing home run. And I think the idea, uh, according to David Brooks, is really um, that that if they can do it gently, there's a way of sort of de-escalating the situation. Um, And he suggests that American officials are assuming there will have to be some kind of negotiation. Uh, The first American hope, according to Brooks, is that Putin will eventually do a cost-benefit analysis and conclude that his best option is to negotiate. The second American hope is that the Ukrainians will also do a cost-benefit analysis. So interesting the way we're now moving on from that, how do you sort of win the war, if you like, to that more, how do we deal with this caged or cornered tiger in the form of Vladimir Putin? Mm.
0: Charles, of course, you used to work for the Moscow Times. You were based in Russia. You speak Russian. Uh, And this whole idea of having to try and get into the Russian psyche to make it easy for him to, to row back without suffering any kind of humiliation is really important.
4: That's right. So the conversation has been increasing now about not only what to do militarily um, to support Ukraine and to continue to push back and also to manage what happens after the annexation, but there's creeping into the conversation now is a discussion of some sort of end game. And one of the things that's being talked about as part of that conversation is how do you help in inverted commas, President Putin save face, because there's this understanding that under no circumstances, or let's put it differently, if he lost in the current con- you know, definition of the word losing the war, um, what would happen to him and what would happen to Russia and how destabilizing would that be? And one way of stopping just short of that is providing some way for President Putin to save face in front of his public. Um, No one knows how that would look, no one knows how to do it, Um, but what's interesting is that the conversation in Russia in political elites and among the public and commentators is that there is a sort of a whiff of the beginning of the end to all of this.
0: Mm, But of course, we've got the referendum going on at the moment in Luhansk, in Donetsk, in Zaporizhia and in Kharkiv. And uh, it seems from from the, the reporting that's coming out of the region that people are being forced to vote at gunpoint, that they're being threatened, that they'll lose their jobs and so on. I mean, there is absolutely no doubt, surely, Simon, that this referendum will go Russia's way. Oh,
3: absolutely. And probably in that kind of uh, totalitarian figures as well, like 90% or something. Yeah, we we understand that, uh, well, Ukrainians have been reported that armed soldiers are actually going door to door to collect votes in these sort of referendums, in inverted commas. Um, uh, the, the, according to TASS, the, this, the I was going to say Soviet, of course, no longer, uh, the, the Russian news agency, in-person voting will take place until the 27th of uh, September on other days voting will be organised in communities so why would you go to somebody's door and knock on the door and ask them how they're going to vote I mean this isn't a referendum it's just an added sort of pressure and um, added um Uh, bullying really isn't it really but i mean obviously the ultimate aim is for once these referendum results are declared and they are absolutely overwhelmingly funnily enough for certain areas of ukraine anyway to uh, probably russian speaking to become part of Russia, then obviously the idea is that that gives Russia then a mandate for sort of more aggressive action but um, again it's just interesting another element of the mix adding to the level of uncertainty at the moment
0: mm. I mean Charles, do you think that Putin genuinely believes and Lavrov that they are hard done by, that everything Lavrov said at the UN was 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 his truth uh, as, as we like to talk about it these days, I'm giving you my personal truth um, <laughs> And my lived experience. Um, so, I mean, but is that the case for Lavrov or, or is he, you know, surely he's going out there to bat for something he just doesn't believe in. That's why he had to leave the chamber immediately after his speech.
4: Well, yeah, there's a, there's a few things to think about there. And that is, first of all, that Lavrov had to sit there at the Security Council and listen to people pile condemnation on his head. And then he gave his speech and knew that the same thing was going to follow. So that's why he essentially stormed out of, of the room because he just didn't want to hear world leader after world leader after world leader condemn him and his country for what's happening in ukraine so he left there is a school of thought that says that inside Sergei Lavrov's head is the thought that if only I had retired on February 23rd, (laughs) that I could be in the south of France right now or somewhere in Tuscany um, enjoying a retirement, sort of smoking and drinking really nice red wine, and I'd have shot of all of this. Mm. Um, Now that he's in, he's in. Um, He has been a faithful Putin lieutenant throughout. Um, There's a view that he is not an individual who is himself setting foreign policy. He is an individual who is executing foreign policy on behalf of the president whether he believes what he's saying or not, he's got to say it and he's saying it very loudly and very forcefully. Um, as for what's going inside President Putin's head, this is you know, the $64,000 question and, and eternally will be thus. Um, we no longer believe that he's thinking rationally, whatever he's thinking. And that's what makes predicting the trajectory of this, whether it's the beginning of the end or the middle of the end, um, we just don't know.
0: Do you do you agree with that, that that Putin may be not thinking rationally at all that perhaps his his grasp on reality is is not all that firm?
3: Uh, yeah, I think that's part of the problem, isn't it? I think there's a delicious horrible irony here that so many of the things that Putin has done the lies, the intimidation, the kleptocracy are actually now coming back to bite him so, um, you know, he lied to the soldiers going to Ukraine by telling them it's just a military, special military op- operation or even that you're just going on a training exercise he lied to them telling them that they would be welcomed as liberators and now of course, you know, they've been absolutely uh, you know, attacked by uh, the people who they're invading so that's def- uh, affected their morale. He He's involved in massive corruption as we know and so there's this awful story that many of the the tanks have got stuck and the military vehicles have got stuck because instead of having proper tires they've got cheap Chinese imitations, because the kind of corruption that he has made endemic in Russia means that somebody's, you know, had a backhander along the line. So, and also the kind of fear that he uh, creates, he instills amongst so many people in the country, means that yeah, he can only hear good news. Nobody clearly dares say to him, "Uh, Mr. President, sorry, we can't do this. We don't have the resources. And so you create that kind of good news atmosphere where where nobody can can tell you the truth. And so, as I say, I think. He probably has lost touch with reality. And the other point, just, just briefly to make, is that, of course, now he's taken over uh, detailed control of this operation, echoes of Tsar Nicholas II, of course. Uh, the problem is, of course, people pointing out that actually he has no great military training or experience, so he really isn't in a good position to do this.
0: Mm. Well, let's talk about somebody else who has a tenuous grip on reality, uh, who thinks that perhaps he can declassify documents just with the power of his mind. Charles, you know exactly of whom I speak.
4: Yes, I do. It might be a certain president who's rather orangish in tint. <laughs> um, so. would that be? Do enlighten me. <laughs> President Trump, when we talk about how um, he's referred to as TFG, the former guy, um, and, and when we talk about how world leaders behave when they're cornered, we're learning a little bit about how President Trump is behaving now that he's cornered. And he's cornered very, very significantly and very seriously in a legal way um, with events over um, the past week, particularly with the lawsuit coming from the United, uh, the New York State Attorney General Letitia James accusing him of, of absolutely staggering levels of fraud in the way he ran. The Trump organization, um, and what President Trump is doing is essentially he's doubling down not just on his base, but on a subunit of his base who are QAnon believers, and, and these are people who are mass conspiracy theory supporters um, who believe that, that, that the deepest insides of the American government are run essentially by by a cult, um, and he's appealing to them and gave a speech at a political rally earlier this week, the images of which, once they emerged in the media, were absolutely absolutely. Absolutely shocking. And that is that here are thousands of people in a stadium listening to President Trump and giving a salute that can be described as nothing other than Nazi adjacent. Uh, and, And so here is a cornered former world leader. Um, who also is, is sort of doubling down on, on, on some of the most extremist behavior you can imagine.
0: Um, but in terms of, of uh, Q, uh, QAnon, Simon, uh, these people are about to go, to, many of them are about to go down for the January the 6th insurrection. So, I, I mean, it does seem a little odd that he should be going to, to or perhaps they're the only group that still support him, but I, I doubt that, but but to going to these people for support when so many of them uh, are also in the, the eye of the legal storm.
3: Yeah, but... but but you have to remember, uh, Georgina, that with they're going down for what they did on January the sixth, that's because of the deep state. That's the corrupt legal system that is doing down good patriots who have done their best to protect their country. Yeah, I mean, uh, so I think that what it what it shows is is <laughs> the comparison between Trump and his old mate Putin are really striking, aren't they? Really, and I think it's it's human psychology that means that when you're under attack the natural, the sort of the logical thing, rather, should be to create some kind of empathy with your attackers or whatever, or to open up, to to engage in a dialogue or something. But, but people don't do that, especially groups when they're under attack. Uh, they become more isolated, more inward-looking, more fervent in their views. And I think, um, you know, that's what's happening here. I, I wonder whether this, in a way, could be good news for moderate Republicans. I mean, if Trump is so pushed into a kind of extreme position more extreme than he's had before he's so associated with QAnon, which has huge numbers of supporters obviously but it's still a relative niche organization i just wonder whether um for as i say for re- moderate republicans and hopefully for the whole american political situation uh, there might be an opportunity here if you like a- as trump is pushed into this more extreme um and isolated position what do you
4: think charles I think moderate Republicans have lost control of the Republican Party. Um, And and I think that – I think it's increasingly unlikely that Trump will run or be reelected or, you know, will be the party's nominee really for 2024. Um, If you look at some recent statistics, um, his PAC raised only 40 $40 dollars. In August, and so you need a lot more money than forty dollars. I think you
3: say million. (laughs) No, no, no.
4: everyone. This is the thing. This was published um, in the mainstream press and released Mm -hmm. globally, and everyone thought it was a typo and that they left off several zeros. Um, And that's not the case at all. He only raised somebody. You know, somebody made a contribution of forty dollars from somewhere in in in, in a flyover state. Forgive me for using the expression, Mm -hmm. Um, but um, you need a lot more money than that to run a presidential campaign. Um, I think that the alternative to Trump is probably not a moderate Republican, but probably somebody who is just as hard right as Trump, but smarter. And of course, everyone's looking at Ron DeSantis, Mm -hmm. who is Harvard and Yale educated. Um, And so in that case, mainstream, but as MAGA as Trump and clever.
0: Well, clever would be a start. <laughs>
4: interesting. What an interesting concept. <laughs>
0: um, you were talking about the QAnon rallies and of course people giving what looked like a Nazi salute. Well, I want to go to Italy now because of course there are whispers about the Nazi past or at least the very fascist past uh, of the Fr- uh, Fratelli d'Italia party. So let's uh, let's go to Italy because of course they're going to the polls today. Uh, the uh, president of Georgia of Fratelli d'Italia is Giorgia Maloney. Uh, she and her party making headlines all over Europe. And Ed Stocker, who's our editor-at-large, is in Milan uh, to update us. Good morning to you, Ed. What's the mood uh, in Italy today?
1: Well, it's, it's kind of a bit of an overcast autumnal day here in Milan and, you know, being a Sunday, uh, it's often quite a slow start. But I was, uh, I was down at a polling station this morning uh, and, in fact, just about half an hour before we came on air uh, and it was starting to pick up. Um, People were starting to stream in, actually, and as I left, a load more people coming in. So people going out there on this Sunday morning in Milan and exercising their vote, uh, sort of mixed feelings from some of the people I spoke to. One person said it was, you know, a great feeling, a sort of civic coming together, people at least exercising their right to vote, that feeling of togetherness, even if, of course, people are going to be voting for for very different parties. I spoke to another woman uh, who was... uh, who's originally from Germany but naturalised Italian uh, who, who said that she voted for a, a sort of very small uh, party called Vita uh, because she was basically upset and thought well, the rest of them were pretty useless uh, and I, I think that's going to be a strong sentiment taken into the voting today that's been going on for, since 7 this morning and goes through pretty late right through until 11pm this evening. Uh, this feeling of, of um, you know feeling that the others have failed that the politicians are people who fight and don't seem to be able to find a way through and i think really that's played into the hands of the party you just mentioned Giorgina Fratelli d'Italia the brothers of italy this far right party led by the roman giorgia meloni that is on the cusp of potentially winning the largest share of the vote and being able to form a coalition she would be italy's first uh, female politician and it would be a remarkable turnaround really given the fact that this is a party that just scraped four percent of the vote back in 2018 it's been a radical turnaround in fortunes if the polls are to be believed And, uh, yeah, we'll have to wait until 11 p.m. this evening when the first exit polls uh, come out. And then, of course, we'll have a clearer idea uh, as we see into Monday.
0: Mm. Uh, Just talking about uh, uh, Georgia Maloney and her party, the Brothers of Italy, and their roots, uh, I mentioned fascism earlier. And, of course, the party, I think, really did begin uh, under Mussolini.
1: I mean, the party was formed back in 2012, but obviously it has roots uh, in other parties that were closely aligned to uh, Mussolini and fascism. Um, You know, Maloney is someone, uh, certainly in the past, who's expressed uh, admiration uh, for Mussolini as a man and the things he's done for Italy. Of course... Uh, She's really tried to move away from that in in recent times. The the party gets called uh, post-fascist, if you like, which is an odd term. Certainly, she's been trying to court this centre ground, the fact that going into these elections, around 40% of Italians were still undecided. We've had this sort of blackout period of 10 days before the election, uh, 15 days before the election, where they can't uh, uh, publish opinion polls. So we don't know exactly the full mood uh, of the population, but we do know a lot of people were really not knowing who they were going to vote for right up until the vote. She's been really trying to capture that middle ground, appear more moderate, smooth markets, uh, talk, to international leaders and and appeal saying that she's not this radical fascist that she's being made out to be. Of course, you have uh, a leader who is, of course, a figurehead of a party and she's trying to do all those things. But you also have to look at the people behind the party as well. You have to look for the people who are (laughs) up for uh, the lower house and the Senate today who've expressed Uh, more extreme opinions Uh, still a bit a big question mark were she to be the next prime minister of Italy uh, how radical if you like she would be but it seems fair that she would get tough on immigration Mm -hmm. she's talked about that a lot in the past and she uh, also has talked a lot about lowering taxes which has been a big policy of this so-called centre-right coalition
0: Uh, and of course she can't govern alone this is going to be a, a coalition as you say
1: Indeed, I mean, we still don't know. She may. It is entirely possible. Although, if the polls are to be believed, unlikely that another party could actually finish top. The Democratic Party, uh, the centre-left party, is polling just behind uh, Brothers of Italy. It is at the moment the second largest party in Italy is it possible that they scrape past brothers of italy possibly but the point is the system in italy is designed for coalition forming uh, the way the very complicated voting system is done which is a mix of first past the post and proportional representation it favors coalitions the left has fell out fell out with the five-star movement who basically brought the last government down so they refused. To form a coalition with them if they had they may have had a chance to form the next government whereas the right although they have differences of opinion and that's been very much on show in the past have managed to uh, you know have a show of unity they appeared together in rome at the end of the week that is uh, the far-right lega party with brothers of italy and of course Berlusconi. yes he's still around his Forza Italia party. Together, it seems that they would have uh, the numbers if they get the votes that they're predicted to get to form uh, the next government of Italy. And therefore, if Giorgia Meloni's Brothers of Italy party finishes first, as in is the top polling party out of those three, she would become the next Prime Minister of Italy.
0: Mm. Uh, Ed, thank you very much indeed. I know we're going to be speaking to you, I think, uh, tomorrow uh, just to get an update on exactly what happens overnight and uh, to get the first of those uh, results coming through. That was Monocle's editor-at-large, Ed Stocker, in Milan. This is Monocle on Sunday.
5: You're listening to Monocle on Sunday, brought to you in association with Spain. Spain has an inexhaustible capacity to surprise from its rich cultural traditions to its landscapes. It's a place of many wonders for people of all tastes and interests. A country whose cuisine offers almost infinite regional variation, Spain boasts far more than just paella and gazpacho. And whether you crave urban conviviality or the serenity of nature, a perfect Iberian bolt hole awaits. Few countries can equal Spain when it comes to homegrown produce. This abundance of delicious ingredients informs countless regional cuisines that have been perfected over centuries. Across the peninsula, chefs delight in reinventing traditional recipes for foodies craving fresh flavours. But where will you stay? In the centre of the old town, with the clink of glasses below your balcony, or deep in wine country, where the lodgings are as ancient as the vines, and dishes are designed around native varietals. With 5,000 kilometers of coastline, beaches abound, and it's easy to avoid the crowds by choosing a rural town where the welcome is as warm as the weather. Everything you're dreaming of this weekend in Spain this summer. Rediscover Spain and reimagine it. Spain, spreading sunshine on Monocle on Sunday on Monocle 24.
0: This is Monocle on Sunday. I'm Georgina Godwin and I still have my guests with me, Simon Brook and Charles Hecker. Now, we were just listening to Ed Stocker talking to us from Milan uh, about the Italian uh, election, which is happening today. Now, we have seen interesting comments coming out of uh, of Brussels. European Commission Chief Ursula von der Leyen says has warned Italy of consequences should it veer away from democratic principles. She issued a barely veiled threat ahead of today's election uh, and uh, that, of course, is to do with with Giorgia Mulroney Mul- 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 and his party winning. Uh, Charles, tell us more.
4: So Europe has a few things to worry about in connection with the Italian elections. Um, first of all, it's wondering what happened in Sweden. Um, with the victory of a right-wing coalition there. Um, It's worried about Marine Le Pen, who keeps on sort of knocking harder and harder on the door of the French presidency from the far right in France. Um, The EU is worried about whether Italy will adhere to its line on Russia, uh, which is another source of concern. Um, And yes, they are very much worried about Italy's commitment to the rule of law and democracy and fairness. And, you know, Georgia Maloney, if she's going to be active in anywhere, one of the places that she'll be active will be on social issues. And that will be of primary concern to the EU. So there's a a fairly chunky list of concerns coming out of Brussels in connection with the results this evening.
0: Mm. What, what, What has sparked your interest in this?
3: Uh, I, I think it's fascinating. I think, as you say, Charles, you know, you've got the situation with the Swedish Democrats, this extreme right-wing party, which has moved from, as as Ed was saying, with the Fratelli d'Italia, from almost nowhere right up and uh, into the political mainstream which has been interesting. I think there are a number of other things if you're not Italian um, then uh, obviously as you as you say Charles, there's the concern about the EU. I, th- I think probably the EU is generally popular in Italy, isn't it? Uh, approval ratings about 70% or something. So that must be a uh, um a relief to them. They've also got some cash to help as well. The the commission of course has has been offering uh pandemic recovery funds of about 200 billion euros and georgia maloney says she's going to do some negotiation on that but at the end of the day do you want the money or not so i think that's going to help isn't it um i think the other concerns uh the good news i suppose again for the international community is that unlike Berlusconi and salvini her possible uh coalition partners She's she's sound on Putin. She's made it absolutely clear she's no fan of his. The other problem, of course, is for the markets. Um, you know, it, Italy's debt is nearly uh, $3 trillion now. That's 150% of... GDP. So she she talks about tax cuts, but she has limited uh, room to manu- move here. So, uh, yeah, there are a lot of things to um, to worry about in this situation. But as I say, I think if you're outside Italy looking in, then there are a lot of sort of constraints, if you like. She can't be quite as revolutionary, perhaps, as she might have suggested during the election because of uh, the position with the EU and
4: also with the markets.
0: And migrants, of course, Charles, that is going to be a huge part of this.
4: That's right. And, and, and what's interesting is that one of The first things that that Georgia Malone is going to have to do in spite of all of the right-wing rhetoric and in spite of the positioning in, in, in Europe and all the things that we've just been talking about, she has an incredibly challenging domestic environment to deal with. And that is that, you know, this is the first time in a very long time that elections in Italy are being held in the autumn. And this particular autumn is on the cusp of what promises across Europe to be an absolutely dreadful winter. And if she doesn't get to grip with these domestic issues, including the cost of living, which is, in, is as bad as in Italy as everywhere else, then she's going to go down. And what she's going to do is she's going to blame this on migrants. The problem is that limiting the flow of migrants doesn't necessarily l- control the cost of living. And so rhetoric and, and sort of populist red meat crackdowns and measures aren't going to cut it here. And And this is an interesting time to note that since World War II, the average length of the average duration of an Italian government is 18 months.
0: Mm, I think it's 70 governments in 77 years. Yeah, (laughs) it's a revolving door. And and so
4: the the fuse is extremely short on all of these issues for her and her coalition.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's very, very difficult. I'd like to move on now, though, to Iran, because, of course, uh, the death of Masa Amini last Friday uh, for not wearing her uh, modest clothing properly, apparently, according to the morality police. She died in custody, and that has generated protests Across the country there 's a lot of column inches about this, particularly reporting on how women are taking to the streets, cutting off their hair, casting off their head coverings, and being really incredibly brave. Uh, Simon, what have you seen on this
3: well, interesting um, Yes, yeah, reports of something like uh, thirty five people have been killed unfortunately in these protests um, since the death of Mesa amini uh, interesting as well that that uh, There have been quite a lot of protests, concerns expressed by uh, religiously conservative women. So it's not just a kind of westernized um, anti-regime movement here. It is interesting now that this does seem to be spreading um, more widely. Um, And uh, the other concern as well is the fact that um, the authorities, it's thought, have been uh, monitoring the Internet and blocking um, uh, various sort of social channels and stuff. America has said that they will uh, override, if you like, um, uh, sanctions to allow the big um, technology companies to keep. Um, social media and other communications open. I I wonder I mean it's always interesting isn't it uh, the situation in Iran. I mean I suppose to some extent I was thinking of that sort of situation with the Arab Spring um, where the young man you know just one situation you know sort of just over 10 years ago now 12 years ago uh, a Tunisian fruit and vegetable sales salesman who set himself on fire in a small town um, you know just to protest against the the, the government and the corruption and uh, the lack of any kind of freedom. And obviously, the Arab Spring ended in many ways in tragedy, really, doesn't it? It wasn't the stability and the, econ- uh, and the, and the democracy that many were hoping, but certainly it had huge changes. And I just wonder whether it'll be this one little event uh, coupled with concerns about can I put fuel in the car? Can I put food on the table? All those other economic concerns that, you know, the, the, uh, the corruption in the government, whether this might be the catalyst to drive something bigger.
0: Charles, what do you
4: think? Um, it looks like Iran in the near term is probably headed for an escalation of the civil unrest. Um, and it looks like that in the near term, also in response, there will be a very harsh crackdown um, and that sooner or later, the government is going to crack the whip. Um, the messages are indeed mixed. And that is that senior Iranian politicians are are not supporting uh, Maas's arrest and, and the actions of the religious police. Um, they will, however, be... Um, the organs that institute the crackdown. Um, They're calling for an investigation, in fact, of, of this process, Um, that of the arrest that led to her death in captivity Um, and and so a slightly mixed message there Um, but this is probably not going to lead to any serious changes in the regime and of course I think this it's also been mentioned in a lot of the articles that are coming out over this that this may not even result in a change in the law that requires women to cover their heads and that in spite of the hundreds of thousands of people who are taking to the streets all the way from the top to the bottom and right across Iran, um, that this probably won't even change just that.
0: Mm. Let's talk about change because, of course, we've had a change here in Britain with the uh, prime minister. She uh, doesn't have a mandate from uh, the people, <laughs> indeed from her own MPs, uh, but she is making absolutely sweeping changes. So Liz Truss and her Trussonomics, along with Kwasi Kwarteng, just a couple of minutes on what this is doing. Of course, her she's tearing up, he's tearing up, the uh, economic orthodoxy here—it's a completely new, uh, or at least a, a way that has been tried and found wanting previously. Why might it work this time?
3: That is a good question. Um, Liz Truss makes a big thing about uh, the dash for growth. Um, I think what's interesting here is this sort of debate in the Tory Party about—you know, she very much uh, dresses herself up as the daughter of Thatcher, if you like, Margaret Thatcher. Um, you know, who 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 made great changes to the economy here in the UK in the 1980s, um, but actually people are saying, certainly some Tory MPs I've I've spoken to this week have said, actually it's more like Reaganomics, you know, this idea of borrowing huge amounts of money, getting tax cuts and then somehow the economy is stimulated so you're in a good position to pay back that borrowing. The the problem is, of course, that Reaganomics, uh, well, Reagan had the dollar, we have the pound, which has, Sunk uh, quite uh, dramatically since the uh, uh, announcements were made in the House of Commons. Um, and the other problem is that um, there's no direct proof, if you like, that cutting taxes will lead to this kind of growth. So certainly it was interesting to see not just the response of the markets, but also uh, talking to MPs, as I say, and watching the announcement being made in the House of Commons when the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Kwasi Kwarteng, uh, made his announcement, gave his speech, whatever. There was some cheering, but there were an awful lot of Tory MPs who didn't look very happy about this very reckless, some people might say, experiment.
0: Charles, you're rich because you're you're American and suddenly... Coffee on you, Charles. (laughs) Yeah, the the dollar, of course, worth so much more. The pound has tanked at this news.
4: You know, I have this tiny little app on my iPhone that follows exchange rates and it's a handy thing to use when you go on holiday. It's also a a sort of depressing thing and a tool to use... um, Um, During changes of government because I was consulting with this app over and over and over again all day on Friday and watching the numbers crash. Um, And and the only people... Who we're doing well out of this apparently is the hedge fund community who's busy shorting the pound and, and making a fortune out of all of this. I mean, Simon's absolutely right. Not only has the political reaction to this been um, quite dramatic. I mean, this is one of the worstly received economic packages in the history of the introduction of economic packages. But the markets, you know, politicians are, are human and, and and have agendas and, and have ideological tint. Um, the markets don't. Um, the markets go for what works and for what, and goes against what doesn't, and the markets are going very, very strongly against trustonomics. I mean, it really is, Georgina. I mean, I, I am American. You know, the the accent won't go away. And um, I was a young adult during the Reagan period, and and I feel like Ronald Reagan has risen from the dead to lead the United Kingdom's economy. Um, this is an absolute unrestrained um, bet on trickle-down economics, um, a bet on the wealthy, and, and and a hope that growth rescues everybody. And Simon was right when he said that this has been tried before and it hasn't worked.
0: Absolutely. Gentlemen, I'm sorry to leave that on such a sad note, but I think actually we'll, we'll cheer ourselves up by listening to Andrew Muller and finding out what he learned this week. <laughs>
6: We learned this week that new UK Prime Minister Liz Truss, after an eventful first fortnight in the job, does not quite yet bestride the global stage with the same commanding presence as one or two of her predecessors. We learned, or really chose to conclude this, from the narration of Truss's arrival at Monday's royal funeral by a couple of visiting Australian reporters.
3: No, hard
6: to identify.
3: Maybe uh, minor royals, members of the... I can't identify them we at can't this point. We not everyone, no.
0: unfortunately. They look like they could well be local dignitaries. It's hard to see. We're looking at the backs of their heads mostly. But I think we
6: are now getting to the pointy end, as they say, of the... Was... I'm just told that was Liz Truss, the new Prime Minister, in the distance that we could see hopping out of that car. Well, thank you very much. Still, we learned that if there was one thing more embarrassing than not being recognised as a Prime Minister this week, it was being recognised as a Prime Minister this week, specifically being recognised as a Prime Minister bellowing debatably appropriate power ballads in a hotel bar. While we learned that while Justin Trudeau for That Was He remains eternally that guy who wants to tell you about the band he played bass for in college who opened for Weezer that time, he has at least finally got the message about suiting up in traditional rig when abroad. We can at least be grateful that he didn't stride into Westminster Abbey dressed as a beef eater. But we learned that whatever Australian commentators and Canada's Prime Minister may have lacked in due reverence for the spectacle unfolding before them was more than adequately compensated for by House of Commons Speaker Sir Lindsay Hoyle, who put proceedings into their proper perspective. We should not allow anything to overshadow the most important event the world will ever see, and that's the funeral. Majesty. We learned, therefore, that the development of the wheel, the corralling of fire, the birth of Christ, the fall of Rome, Columbus's voyage to the Americas, the entire Industrial Revolution, Apollo 11, and any number of inventions, discoveries, wars, revolutions and sundry brouhaha's had all been kicked down a notch. But we learned, almost as Sir Lindsay spoke, that this week's melancholy events in London had already been superseded in one key respect. I can't wait to see where this goes Let's see where this goes For this was the week we learned That the worst thing which has ever happened Had happened And we have audio
0: And we're going to place that on the second fret Okay, that's the second space Hello Aloha What
6: you can't hear anymore, as, let's face it, you've already flung your phone or laptop out of the nearest available window, honestly not sure why we're still ploughing on, is people on an aeroplane all playing ukuleles, with which they have actually been issued by the aircrew. Like, this is a thing in which any sane or decent citizen would wish to participate. (laughs) We learned that this insufferably whimsical occurrence was the idea of an attention-seeking airline. We are
3: with Guitar Center Lessons. We are so excited to be partnering with Southwest Airlines to give you a free ukulele, kickback, and a beginner class right here on this plane for the very first time in history.
6: Passengers aboard Southwest's service from Long Beach to Honolulu were all issued with ukuleles and given a massed lesson in how to strum the song Hello, Aloha, How Are You, a hit circa the 1920s by the singing sophomores, which was annoying enough when they did it. Hello,
2: Aloha, how are you?
6: The Hammer, if you please. We learned, basically, that despite what may have been widely and indeed reasonably assumed, it turns out that it is actually possible to render the ukulele, instrument of choice of unbearable twee hipsters with either stupid waxed moustaches or infuriating gingham dresses, even more annoying, specifically by giving 200 of the goddamn things to people confined in an aeroplane, and then failing to fly it into a mountain. Sticking with the theme we have now solidly established of combining travelling at high altitude with utterly atrocious music, we learned of an exciting new development in the evolution of Space Force, which we also learned thereby is still a thing for some reason. Space Force, as listeners who have inexplicably chosen to endure the modern age sober may recall, is the relatively recently inaugurated newest branch of the US military and was an initiative of this guy. And then they have cans of soup. Soap. Space Force had previously unveiled much-mocked uniforms and widely derided insignia, and Space Force has now, we learned, blessed us with a Space Force song, which we learned absolutely sucks out loud. The hammer, again, if you would.
0: Any time before the chorus, please.
6: We learned when we looked into it further, because we're good like that, that this inelegant John Philip Sousa pastiche was the work of the chief musician of the US Coast Guard, i.e. a rival service branch, and that, therefore, the possibility that this is some sort of elaborate hazing ritual cannot be altogether discounted. Still, at least it isn't played on ukuleles. Oh, make it stop!
5: Make it stop! Muller, make it stop!
6: For Monocle24,
0: I'm Andrew Muller. Very many thanks there to Andrew Muller. Also to my other guests, Simon Brooke, Charles Hecker, Ed Stocker and, of course, our editorial director, Tyler Brulé. Our producer was Desiree Bandley and our studio manager in London was Callum MacLean. And, of course, Monocle on Sunday returns at the same time next week. I'm Georgina Godwin. I'll be with you for the rest of the day and also, first thing, tomorrow morning on The Globalist. Do join us then if you can. Thanks for listening.